Lord, not only are you our help from ages past, you're, you helped us yesterday and this morning. You are an ever-present source of life and strength and power for us. And for that, we give you thanks. And Lord, in the face of any stormy blast, the difficulties that come our way, we know that you are there with us to strengthen us, to encourage, but also to level the way. We pray that as we are before you today, that we would get a sense of your power, your grace, and your mercy through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So, those of you who have been in the military uh, and or understand anything about the military, uh, you know that it's focused on mission. Mission is almost everything. Some services will say, you know, something like people first, mission always, or mission first, people always, something like that. But it's about the mission. And for your special operators, that is your special operations forces, it's really about the mission. My younger brother served 18 years in the the Green Beret, and one of the things that he told me was that nothing stands between them and and mission accomplishment. I understand that. Accomplish the mission. It doesn't matter if others give up. It doesn't matter if others drop out. You finish the mission. You complete it. You accomplish the mission. I have a rare coin. Uh, It's relatively rare in my office uh, from the Sears School. All your most elite special operators have to go through that school to graduate from. It says, Return with Honor on it. And SEER stands for Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape. And those aren't mere words. Those are fundamental concepts, principles of the warrior ethos. Now, Rome had warriors everywhere, soldiers everywhere in Palestine. Jerusalem was filled with them. You couldn't throw a rock without hitting a Roman soldier, except for in one place, that was the temple. You see, Rome allowed the temple guard to carry shield and sword. They were the only Jews, in fact, that the Romans allowed to be armed for combat, was the temple guard, that's it. The temple guard's singular mission was perfectly aligned with Rome, right? In the temple, it was to keep people safe and uh, stop any kind of disruption that might occur. So when we read of the temple guard in the the Bible, we often think of them uh, more as amateurs than uh, professionals. Uh, You know, some guys with some sticks that would knock people in the head that weren't doing it right. That's the wrong view of these Uh, men who were there. In fact, the force was such in the temple that if a temple guard was caught sleeping, the captain of the guard was allowed to set that person on fire as they slept. 
So you're talking about a dedicated, tough group of people who, my guess is, didn't fall asleep on guard duty. Uh, Even Pilate, even Pilate implied that the temple guard was just as good as his Roman guard when he said to use them to guard the tomb. So when these men were told to accomplish a mission, they did. But in our text today, they didn't. <laughs> and how is that possible? How, how is it possible to keep a warrior from their mission? Well, let's read the text to see. So when they heard these words, this is in John chapter 7, beginning in uh, verse 40 uh, to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people. Over him, we've talked about this for several weeks now, this division. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest, that is the temple guard, came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know, uh, that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So as we've been hearing, uh, some thought he was the prophet. Uh, Others thought he is uh, the Christ. And still other reasons he can't be because he is not from Bethlehem. And, And that's still true today. It's not just a matter of that there's a a, a dichotomy, it's a, a, a single division. People are all over the map about Jesus. And uh, people aren't willing to listen to what Jesus says about uh, Jesus. Certainly the Jewish leadership uh, was not in a mood to listen. One of my primary responsibilities uh, when I'm conducting a, a therapeutic interview is de- to determine the client's stage of change. So no matter where you go or how you slice this or what you call them, essentially there are, there are five stages. You've got pre-contemplation, contemplation, uh, preparation, action, and maintenance. And all that is is some people are ready for change. Other people are not. Uh, they may come for counsel, but they're not ready for change. They, they may want to vent or they may simply want to gain an ally, or they, for some other reason, uh, maybe they're interested in change, but they really can't for whatever reason. And when I assess the Pharisees in this, 
They're in the pre-contemplation. So what does that mean, pre-contemplation? What it means is, is they would have to be pressured to get into a place where they changed their mind. That's the only way that they would do it. In fact, they're not even considering changing their mind or their behavior at all. Why? Because they think they're right. And when you think you're right, I'm sorry, you're not going to change. Uh, even if, in fact, you are wrong. Because Why? You don't recognize the need. All you've got to do is, is uh, we have a, a picture of this uh, in the Bible for us. Saul, before his conversion, he was imprisoning and killing people who were naming the name of Christ, and he thought he was doing God a service. That's pre-contemplation. That's where the Pharisees were. But I think there was maybe even a little bit more than that because that might put them in some sort of, uh, some kind of innocent category, which I don't want to do because I suspect they were suppressing uh, the truth. In fact, it's, it's important for us to understand that we're no longer dealing with impartiality among the Jewish leadership. We're dealing actually with a kind of uh, madness. Uh, to use a modern phrase, they were suffering from uh, Jesus uh, derangement syndrome. Tolkien wrote in uh, his just one of his wonderful books of Denethor the second, who was the steward of the great city of uh, Gondor, Ministereth, and he was seemingly a good and a humble leader as long as the rightful king wasn't there. As soon as the rightful king showed up, his jealousy, his anger, and the venom uh, just boiled up and spewed over such that his insane jealousy caused him to send his only surviving son to a certain death. That's where these people are. And we need to understand that the leadership was, they were furious with the guard, with the people, and even with... Nicodemus, the slightest hint of even justice in this matter sent them totally over the edge. So I just want to point out three ways we can recognize this kind of madness they were under. First, they said, and this I think is in verse 52, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, some of you are certainly aware that some prophets did, in fact, arise from Galilee. Uh, Jonah, for one, for that matter, Nahum, and, and uh, perhaps some others. Some scholars believe that Micah was Galilean as well. So it wasn't simply that they were wrong. They knew this. They knew this better than you and better than me. And yet they made a statement so they're willing to throw all of Galilee under the bus in order to discredit Jesus. Uh, that's all they were doing. And there was, in fact, a um, widely held negative bias against Galileans in that day. Of course, you know that they were explicitly referring to uh, the prophet, Messiah, they, coming from Galilee. But that doesn't matter. They were willing to throw the whole bunch of them under the bus in order to make that statement. Second, listen to this. The crowds did not know the law. <laughs> Fat chance. Uh, but they viewed the crowds 
as not knowing the law. And they said in verse 49, this crowd does not know the law. And because of that, they are accursed. They're accursed because of, of that. This, you know, one would think this is an astonishing statement because who were these Jews who were there? These Jews who were there were the Jewish people who were within 15 uh, mile radius of Jerusalem. In other words, if anyone knew the law, they did. They were the ones who practiced the law regularly. And, but it's not as astonishing uh, as it seems that they would throw Galilee under the bus. Now they're throwing all the people of Jerusalem under the bus because you have to understand one thing. The Pharisees, and we're getting a, um, a flavor of this today. We're, we're getting a sense of this in our society uh, today. But the Pharisees despised the people of the land. Amharats. Rabbi Eliezer said this. This is a quote. It is lawful to stab a person of the land, that's Amharats, a person of the land, on the day of atonement that falls on a Sabbath. So let's just find the most holy day of the year, and these people are so worthless, let's just uh, stab them. So his disciples answered, uh, this is in the, the Talmud, if you care to look it up. You mean to slaughter them? Oh, no, 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 no. Because if you slaughtered, that would mean you would have to do a benediction, thus breaking the Sabbath. Stabbing doesn't. So you're talking about a disdain. Of course, that was an overstatement. Nobody went around stabbing people on, you know, the Day of Atonement on the Sabbath. But he was trying to describe an emotional state that they had. And let me read, uh, this was in the day of, of Jesus, because that was an overstatement, but here were the rules that they were to follow. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him a guardian of an orphan. Do not make him a custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. Forbid him to be a guest, your guest, or forbid him to be his guest. Okay, so this madness defamed the entire population. And few times in history do we get to see the curtain drawn back like this of how the elites see the average people. But that has not changed. It, it has not changed. And we need to understand that. Not that we need to go poking around and saying, who is doing this or who is doing that? But understand that Scripture takes the blinders off of them and us, and they cannot hide their disdain. They cannot hide their disgust. But the question here, and this is what John is demonstrating, who actually has the blinders on? Who really is cursed here? So third, not only do you have the situation where this uh, horrid uh, bias against the Galileans, but you also have this uh, bias against the 
people of Jerusalem, but now they even go after their own. That's how deep this madness goes. When you get consumed with a, some kind of a madness like this, you end, you end up going after your own. And so they thought Nicodemus was blinded. So Nicodemus wasn't simply a Pharisee. We learned from the text that he was actually one of them. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the ruling class. And all he does, all he does is offer a word of caution. In verse 51, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? All he's saying is, let's... Put this man in the justice system and see what happens. (laughs) Oh, no. No, 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 no. They replied, are you from Galilee too? So now they're throwing Nicodemus under the bus. The Pharisees were implying that no one could be so dumb, so stupid, so ignorant as to believe that Jesus was the Christ. Now, John is doing this deliberately in his his writing. What he's doing is he's juxtaposing, he's contrasting how John was introducing Nicodemus in verse 50. Because rather than be open to his concern to know the facts about the case, they in essence said that they wouldn't give him a chance and uh, Jesus or Nicodemus. So... The temple guard, blinded by deception. The, the crowds are blinded by a curse. And Nicodemus is blinded by his Galilean bias. But John shows us that the tables are turned. All these indictments are going to show the Pharisees themselves to be the ones really deceived and cursed and biased. I just want to kind of um, focus on Nicodemus for a couple of moments here. If you'll recall, was introduced to us back in chapter 3. And we know that he was fair. I mean, he really gave uh, Jesus an audience there. And he was probably um, well-liked. But as we heard, as soon as he appealed to justice, they, they began to turn on him. That's the kind of madness that they were under. You know, it's like, don't bother me with the facts. Uh, my mind is made up. Occasionally I'll warn about righteous men like like this. That is those people who claim to be righteous but who are really uh, empty or, or worse uh, inside. So I don't know, Nicodemus in chapter 3, maybe he came at night because he was busy. Maybe he came because of, at night because of prayer pressure. It, it really doesn't matter why he came at night. What matters is the conversation that they had. And it was a lengthy conversation. And it ultimately ended up with Jesus, the untrained, unschooled man from Galilee, rebuking Nicodemus. In fact, it was almost like a rebuke of astonishment or he, when he said, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Now, Nicodemus could have become enraged at that point. That is not what happened. Uh, He accepted that rebuke. It's clear based on the rest of Scripture that he accepted that rebuke and he turned toward Jesus instead of like the Pharisees who were turning 
away uh, from Jesus. So this is instructive for us because at times uh, Jesus may rebuke us. He may rebuke us so that we may learn more of him. The rebuke is not a matter or a form of punishment. It is, in fact, a means for us to learn about him. Nicodemus was learning. Who is this Jesus? And you see this this process, and it looks like there's a process there uh, over time where we look at the life of Nicodemus. We're going to see him one more time in Scripture uh, before uh, we are finished with the book of John, but that's going to be sometime next year. Uh, so I just want to preview it right now by reading a few verses from chapter 19, 38, and 40. It's, this is right after the crucifixion. A- after these things, that is the, the crucifixion, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come uh, to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in a linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So when Jesus died, you saw the, sc- the scattering of the disciples. So Peter, probably the leader among the disciples, uh, actually even denied uh, Jesus there. Now, we know that John was at the cross, so he was there. But you had these men who came forward. One was afraid of the Jews, but he went to Pilate to beg Uh, for uh, the body. So Joseph and Nicodemus together uh, came and claimed the body of Jesus. And they gave him honor. And they were willing to give that honor in front of the Romans and in front of the people. And so you see that Nicodemus' journey from uh, the night in chapter 3, not only to the daylight in chapter 19 but in front of Rome and Israel. We I I, I wish I had time to develop this. I I don't because the, the, the truth of this, I don't want it to just fly by, but it might for some. We think entirely too much about what others think about us. We do. 30% of teenage girls just this past year, and if you take in a few other years with the whole COVID thing, have contemplated suicide. 30% have contemplated suicide. What? What could drive such a thing? I'll tell you what will drive such a thing. Social media. What others think about me. Or in turn, what I think about others. You know, people, unless it's humorous, you don't see people's worst moments on social media. You don't. 
Everybody's always happy and perfect and traveling in some sort of sunshine or palm trees or crystal clear blue water or whatever. And so consequently, we live in this false world where we begin to think more about what others think about us or what I don't have and what others do have. And instead of just faithfully journeying with the grace of God, people change every day that you do not think about yourself the same way you did 10 years ago or 5 years ago. In some cases, yesterday. Sometimes the grace of God works quickly in us. Sometimes the grace of God works slowly, but surely, as with Nicodemus. And it's important for us to only care about what the Lord thinks about us, not what others. And I'll tell you what the Lord thinks about you. Do you know what the Lord thinks about you? He thinks about you all day long, every day. And his thoughts are of his love and his mercy and his compassion for you. Not how he can't wait to get a hold of you to smack you around because you were so bad. It's not the way the Lord works. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ took the sword of God's wrath. Not you. What we have is grace and mercy, compassion. We are born again and we are changed. Now as I begin the turn toward the conclusion of this message, we, I want to turn to the center of this division and condemnation and that's the words right here no one ever spoke like this man that's the pivot that's the inflection point of the passage john wants us to see that it is a uniqueness of jesus christ himself that leads to the suppression of the truth or to embracing grace it's because that's what he does i mean you you just slip over to corinthians with the the, the, the smell, the aroma, the one is to life and the other is to death. Jesus Christ himself causes this division, this suppression, which I think is what the Pharisees were in part at least doing. The Apostle Paul wrote about this when he wrote to Rome and he said, those who suppress the truth that they claim to be wise became fools. And in suppressing the truth, and this is always the case, this is always the case, and it doesn't matter whether it's at a high level in terms of uh, state communications or whether it occurs in the family, in the, in the immediate family. Suppression of the truth, the first casualty is always the facts. Mercy comes Soon after, grace and compassion, and soon all we're left with is vitriol and anger. The truth of the Bible is that it tells us, for example, that we were created in the Imago Dei. What does that mean? We were created in the image of God. That tells us that men and women are different. Why? Why? Because 
It's, I mean, it's simple to me when you, when you think about it. One gender cannot express the totality of the character of God that we're able to see in this world as closely as we can come to touch what His image is. And that was made before the fall. And therefore, it is not broken by humanity's um, weakness and failure. It's a unique presentation of the attributes of God. And so as such, Scripture tells us something about sexual ethics. It tells us something about marriage. It tells us something about when life begins and so many other areas. Now, why am I bringing those things up? I'll tell you why I'm bringing it up. Because there are those who will use the Scripture in this one little area and yet not take the totality of Scripture for their lives. And I I just, I can't tell you how it disgusts me when I see political leaders attempt to do this, to use the Bible to support this but not that, and support this which is clearly in opposition to the whole of Scripture, which is unbiblical. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Last week, I attempted to paint a a picture of the celebration of the booths, you know, as they... They marched in and they're singing scripture and they're, they're quoting scripture and they're having this wonderful time and this priest is carrying this, you know, two liters. So that's a, it's a big pot, right? Golden. And he goes around the altar seven times and then he pours the water on the altar. And while we're not told, I gave you my opinion, I'll give it to you again. I believe it was at just that moment that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, if anyone's thirst... Let him come to me and drink. These are the words that John highlighted. uh, And they're the words that we should highlight as well. So regardless of, of when it was said, these words so arrested the officer's attention, the temple guard's attention, that they set aside their mission to arrest him. I want you to note a few things. Number one, it was not for the fear of the people. In other words, they weren't there listening to him and then said, oh goodness, if we try to take him now, they're going to get us. That's not what it says. It was not for fear of starting a riot. Oh my, if we take him, they're going to start a riot. It was not for fear of their safety that they would come back to the leaders of the Jews and say, we didn't fulfill our mission. Why was it? It was because they were stunned by the words of Jesus Christ. Those with the power to arrest Jesus were so arrested by Jesus's words that they dropped their mission. That is stunning. I do not believe that Nicodemus was the only one that reported this story to John so that he could write it down. I believe that among those who were saved that day were among the guard who were sent to arrest him. 
In this division, I mean, when Jesus was born, the older, uh, you'll recall, Simeon uh, said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then Jesus said later, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It was this utter uniqueness of Jesus that caused this division. No one ever spoke like this man. They were being faced with the truth. They, he, he could not be, based on what he was saying, I'm going to quote Lewis again, just like I did before, he could not be simply a prophet. He could not simply be a teacher. Their hearts had to harmonize. When was the last time you were so stunned by what someone said because of the weight of it and the wisdom of it and the truth of it that your heart harmonized with it in such a way that all you could do was sit? That's a rare occurrence, and I, my guess is that was the first time it ever happened to these men. And it wasn't just one of them. It was all of them. They sensed they were dealing with things eternal. And so they abandoned that mission. Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote, I am here to prevent anyone saying the foolish thing that people often say about him that is about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. It would be best if you made your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. In other words, how Jesus spoke was as no one else has ever spoke. And it makes no sense to say nice things about him if you reject his deity. The secular response to all of this is always the same. Oh, yes, Jesus was a great prophet. Oh, a great uh, teacher. He, but he's also in alignment with all the great uh, prophets and teachers, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, all of those guys. And, and that would be fine, except for Jesus doesn't give us that option. He says, no. It's in essence. Uh, you can't say I'm a great teacher simply. You can't say I'm a prophet simply. You must say I am Messiah. No man ever spoke like this man. He is true. He is who he said he was. And we must not leave that truth undecided upon. He calls on us to drink the water. 
and find in him eternal joy. Polycarp, some of you have perhaps heard the name. He was the ancient bishop of Smyrna. It's kind of an odd-sounding name to us, but it's a wonderful name. Poly, meaning, we know what poly means, many. And karpas is the Greek word for fruit. So, in essence, it means he is the one who is bringing forth much uh, fruit. He was a Christian uh, who was, by church tradition, the disciple of John. And he was martyred when he was 86 years old, burned at the stake without being bound. Just, he stood there. It's an amazing story. I find that at his arrest, there's even something, maybe not more amazing, but just as. When they came in to arrest him, he had the people with him serve them food because they had had a long journey. He was, he was, out, to, he was out quite a distance. And, and while they ate, he prayed. And his prayers were so powerful that those who listened were sorry. This is what we have recorded in the record. Many of them were sorry that they had come to arrest him. And they begged with him and they pleaded with him to, you know, to give a way out. He would not take it. But they wanted to abandon their mission. I'm wondering about us. Do our words, or more than that, I think words are sometimes the weakest way we present ourselves. Do our actions, do the things that we do cause people to stop and ponder and think and wonder about God are they looking at us and they, are they saying, what, is, what, are you, what are you all about that you would do such a thing? Does the way we live our lives give others a path that they want to follow? Perhaps a path that they didn't even know existed. This is what we must, as believers, offer them. This is through the ministry of the gospel that we speak words of grace and that we speak words of truth and compassion. And we must understand that through the incarnation and the incarnational ministry that we have, that is the Holy Spirit within us as we go out and meet other people, it is true that we may come to someone or someone may come to us as the closest they ever get to Christ in this life. Is there anything about us that is compelling? May Christ be the voice through you that causes the person next to you, the person at work, the person you meet in the grocery store, one of your family members to say, no, Man has ever spoke like this man and give their life to the giver of life. Father, we uh, this picture that we've been looking at in John chapter 7 
it does all come down to what the sign at the front of the auditorium says, to believe or not to believe. There is no there is no middle wall. There is no fence. There is no line that we can stand on and, and balance upon at all. We either trust or we do not trust. And I pray that today those of us who believe our trust would be deepened and perhaps there's one who does not believe and perhaps they've moved from pre-contemplation to contemplation or perhaps they've made the move to where they want to make the change to trust you as Savior. Whatever it is, we know that your will and your way is being done. And we thank you and we praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.